What's good, family? I ain't hear nobody talk back to me. <laughs> Why, I got wet. Hello, y'all good? Good, good, good. Again, it's, it's a joy to be gathered as always. Hey, buddy, uh, with the CHCC family. Uh, let me get you to turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. That's where we're going to be this afternoon. So Genesis chapter 3. As we think about, as we talk about our third article in our statement of faith, of the fall of man. Of the fall of man. So that's where we're going to be this afternoon. Let me ask God for his help again. And then by his grace, we'll, we'll dig in. Let's pray. Father and God, I indeed ask for your help. Because I need it. We need it. And Father, I pray that you would grant it uh, in this time, Lord. And I pray, God, that you would speak uh, and that we would listen, that we would hear uh, what you have to say from your word this afternoon. May we hear it in fresh ways, Lord. Uh, may we uh, hear it in ways, Lord, that will mold and shape us and grow us. And if there are ways that we need conviction by your spirit, may you do that. There are ways by your spirit that we need to repent, may you grant that. Ways that we will need to believe, and that's every day, every moment, to believe upon the gospel, grant that, Lord, by faith. May your word do the work in our hearts, Lord. I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 So here's Article 3 in our Statement of Faith. I'm going to read that, and then we're going to dive into the passage. So Genesis 3. So it says this. It says, we believe that man was created in holiness under the law of his maker, but by voluntary transgression fell from that holy and happy state in consequence of which all mankind are now sinners, not by constraint, but choice, being by nature utterly void of that holiness required by the law of God, positively inclined to evil, and therefore under just condemnation to eternal ruin without defense or excuse. This is Article 3 of what we believe as a church of the fall of man, that man is fallen. If you're taking notes this afternoon, I have three questions, which will really serve as our three points this afternoon. Here they are. One, what is sin? Number two, what are the consequences for our sin? And number three, what's the solution? What's the solution? Let's take this first one head on. What is sin? Look at me. Look at, excuse me, at the text, <laughs> Genesis 3, uh, starting at verse 1. It says, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. 
For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. So first off, a few things that we see here in this text about the serpent is that he was more crafty. That's what verse one tells us, that he was he was more crafty than any other animal that God had made. The word crafty here means that the serpent was cunning, right? that he was he was cunning, that he was a liar. Or another way to, to look at it is that he had the ability to do anything in a bad sense. Right. And that he wouldn't stop at anything to fulfill those bad purposes. That's what it means for him to be be crafty. We also know, according to scripture, to God's word, that this serpent is Satan, right? We know that from Revelation 12, 9, it says, And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. So this here in Revelation 12, 9 is affirming that Satan was once cool with God, right? That at one time... Him and God were cool, but in his pride, he puffed up against God and therefore was kicked out of God's presence along with some of the angels who are now demons, right? This affirms that we see that the deceiver comes in verse one with a deceptive question. So the deceiver comes with a deceptive question in verse one. He says, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden. I want you to look down. You probably have noticed this before, but, but look down with me at the text. Notice that you see God refers to himself as Lord God. Your Bible might have Lord in all caps, right? Referring to his personal name, which is Yahweh, right? But Satan drops off Lord there when he asked a question. You may have noticed that before. But it says, he says, did God actually say uh, probably because Satan does not, he doesn't acknowledge God to be God. Right? He doesn't acknowledge him in the same way we acknowledge him. Instead, he was puffed up and wanted to be in God's place. Right? Notice also this question. It's one of those questions to make you doubt what someone has said or what you believed about something. In this case, it's what God has said. Right. And this question is, is, is really. It's a, it's, it's a questioning of God's word and his character. And I want you to hear this. Essentially, all sin, all sin is a questioning of God's word and his character. So similarly, in the same way that Satan asked this question to, to Eve, making her doubt God's word making her doubt, making her trip up on, did God actually say this? All sin is essentially a questioning of God's word and his character. So when we sin, we're saying, did God actually say? Did God actually say? Do I actually trust him in this moment? Is what he desires for me best? So 
what we're essentially saying when we, when we have the temptation before us, the sin before us, and the choice to say no to sin by God's grace and to say yes in obedience to him, what we're saying in that moment is, is what God has for me, what he desires for me, is that what he has said, is that best for me? Or whatever the sin I'm pursuing, is that better? Is that best? So again, essentially all sin is a, a questioning of who God is and what he has said, what he has told us. Look at how Eve responds in verses 2 through 3. It says, And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. So Eve here is deceived and gives the wrong answer here, but she wasn't even created, as you remember, in the time when God gave the command. We know who was. It was Adam, and Adam was right there, and he knew what God had commanded because the command was given to him. You might be reminded of Genesis 1, 16 through 17. Here's what it says. It says, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So Eve, Adam, heard this command from God. Then in the verses to follow, we know that Eve was, was fashioned, was made by God. But either way, both are held accountable for believing this terrible lie. For believing this terrible lie in verses 4 through 5. It says, but the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Satan tempts Eve to believe that she was missing out on something. That God was holding back something from her. And if you think about it, temptation to sin tends to do that, doesn't it? In that moment of temptation, in that moment of sin... We believe the lie that we might be missing out on this thing. That whatever that sin is, whatever that struggle is, whatever that temptation is, that we are missing out on that thing. That God, the good God, is holding something good back from us. This is essentially what happened to Eve. She made the worst choice. Here in verse 6, what does it say? It says, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Notice the progression here in verse 6, that she saw the fruit as something good to eat. So it's speaking to her better, right? Something good to eat. She sees it as something good to eat. Then that it was also attractive to the eyes, that it was 
beautiful to the eyes. And then that there was also a desire to make one wise, to essentially make one like God. And then she ate and then gave some to Adam, who was right there, who was standing there, defenseless and didn't do anything. This right here shows us a biblical definition of sin. We're thinking about what is sin. This right here, this passage, this is where it all starts. Shows us a biblical definition of sin. That sin is disobeying God. God said what he said. And our first parents disobeyed what he said. And because of their disobedience, every human being since has been born with a bent towards God. A bent towards God, a, a, a bent to, to disobey God, a defect to sin, a disease, sin against God. Another way to put it is that, that sin is missing the mark. It is it's missing the mark. And, and, and we've all missed the mark. We've shot our shots of arrows of imperfection towards the bullseye of God's perfection, and we have all missed terribly. We've missed. You may be reminded of other ways that sin is defined as a trespass. Similarly, if, if yeah, if you were to go in someone's yard and they have a, a, a tr no trespassing sign, and you go into their yard, you're essentially breaking that law of no trespassing. It's the same way with God that our sins are trespasses and that we have all broken God's law. We've broken his commands or a offense to God. Our sin is offensive to God. God and sin, to use, yeah, what we were watching with LJ, God and sin can never be friends. It's essentially like, like it is an offense to God. He hates our sin. So we've all missed the mark. We've inherited our first parents' sin, their disobedience, and as we'll see in just a moment, their judgment. Their judgment. Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And as we all know, that's all of us, and that's every human being on the face of the earth. We were all created in the image of God, but we're fallen. We've sinned against God. It's like if you were to have two mirrors before you. If you had one mirror that wasn't broken and a mirror that had been shattered, these pieces, you look in the mirror, you see yourself as whole here. This is before the fall. You look in this mirror, this is after the fall. You see yourself, you still kind of see yourself in this mirror, but now you see it in a marred sense. You see it in a, a broken sense. Doesn't take away from the Imago Dei. We're all still image bearers, but now our, our image the way we look at ourselves and the way we look at one another is broken. That's essentially what happened. 
that when our first parents sinned and we inherited their sin, their disobedience, their judgment, it broke us. It broke us and it broke the world. So even the world itself, as Romans 8 tells us, is groaning, groaning for that day when God will yeah, make everything whole again. So that's number one. What is sin? Again, it's disobeying God. It's an offense to God. We've trespassed against God. Number two, what are the consequences for our sin? What are the consequences for our sin? So we're going to see that in verses 7 through 14 and all throughout the rest of the passage, so 16 through 20, and then also 22 through 24. So just be looking down as I, I reference these passages. But first, what we'll see is we'll see the effects of our sin. We're going to see the effects of our sin, which are the results and the consequences of our sin. The first one that we see is shame. Look at verse 7. The first one that we see is shame. What does it say in verse 7? It says, Then the eyes of both were open. They knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So for the first time, their nakedness, which they didn't know, and that it was pure and accepted is now seen as something shameful. Something shameful. And what did they try to do? They tried to cover themselves up. I guess the question is, have we felt this same shame? We felt this same shame because of our sin. And because of our sin, we then try to do what? Similar to our first parents, we then try to cover ourselves up. We try to clean ourselves up. We try to make it right ourselves. But as we know, the, the hope and the, the end of the story is that there's someone who took our shame and then offers us the ultimate covering. Amen? Offers us that ultimate covering. So that's shame. That's, that's number one, shame as an effect of our sin. But number two, we also see isolation. Isolation as another effect of our sin. Look at verse 8 through 11. It says, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, God, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? So, I want you to Notice God's mercy here. He comes to Adam and Eve in their most vulnerable moments. In the most vulnerable of moments, in their most shameful moments, God comes to Adam and Eve. But what do they try to do? They try to hide. 
try to, they try to hide, they, they try to isolate themselves from God as if, as we know, we can't hide from God who's everywhere at all times and who's all powerful. But this is what we do in our sin. We try to hide it from God, but for one, he already knows. He knows all things, everything. <clears throat> and then we try to hide it from one another when we are told on several occasions in Scripture to confess our sins to one another, right? Then, not only that, in our sin, we not only try to, to hide our sin from God, from one another, but then we try to keep ourselves away from one another. We try to isolate ourselves by maybe not coming to church or maybe not showing up to, you know, different groups or this, that, and the third or not showing up one-on-one -on -one or responding to text messages or whatever that might be because we are coddling our sin. We are struggling in our sin and not letting others know that we're struggling in our sin. And therefore, isolating ourselves from one another and from God. But what I love, what we love about God's word is that he tells us to do the complete opposite. He tells us to, to come to him. To come to him. We can run to him with our sin. We don't have to hide in the shame we don't have to isolate ourselves. We can go to him because of his love. And because of his love, we can also come to one another. As a gospel-centered community, none of us have it all together. None of us have it right. We may struggle in different ways, but we're all struggling. And so... The encouragement is that we can come to one another. We are told to, we are commanded to, to bear one another's burdens, Galatians 6. So God's word tells us to do the complete opposite. We do what's different. We, we say, no, 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 I'm going to run away. I'm going to isolate myself. I'm going to take care of this myself. I'm going to fight this myself. And amen, you should be going before God, but you're also to come together with one another to experience the blessedness of community and being able to share sin and struggles and be prayed for and be encouraged, lifted up by God's word. That's the church. That's what the church is for. The church is a hospital. It's not a hospice. It's a hospital for all sick people, for all hurting people. So we come here for encouragement, for help, for support. That's what God calls us to do. Amen? Amen. So not only shame, not only isolation, we also see, number three, blaming one another. That in our sin, we sometimes blame the wrong person, blame others for our sins, similar to our first parents. What does it say in verse 12? It says, the man said, 
the woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Sometimes our sin makes us play the blame game. We blame everyone else <clears throat> and everything else for the sin that we chased after, for the things that we ran after. And yeah, we could have been tempted. We are tempted. But no one, yeah, no one makes us make those particular choices to be in particular places where we know we might be tempted. We do that. Or to look at certain things that we know we might be tempted by. Or to do whatever that might be. We're making those choices. So we need to, yeah, remind ourselves that, that we are the ones, as even James tells us, we are the ones who tempt ourselves. God doesn't tempt no one. We do. And others do. So being reminded that we are, we are to blame. We are sinners struggling with sin. So we need to take ownership of our sin and therefore be reminded that we can't blame anyone else. Now granted, obviously, our first parents, it is their fault, so I'm not negating that. It is their fault. <laughs> it is. And in that, We've inherited all of that, <laughs> disobedience and, you know, the judgment. So there is a, a part of it, yeah, where that's true. We have to acknowledge that, right? But on the day-to-day, -day, you know, when we're struggling, da 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 So you get the point. You get the point. <laughs> you get the point. So that's number three. But then the second part of this is the judgment. So the effects of our sin, but then now... The judgment briefly. So in verse 14, we see that the serpent is judged, right? What does it say? It says, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. So essentially, the serpent is cursed here above all animals, all reptiles, and on his belly he shall go for all of his days and eat dust. So we hear now because of what the serpent did in deceiving mankind, he is cursed. Number two, Eve is judged here. It says to the woman in verse 16, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over your life. Baby, why'd you do that? <laughs> I know it's personal is hitting home uh, for all the moms. So, so, so women will experience pain in childbirth now because of the disobedience. And then also, not only that, that men and women will bump heads. See that as well. That men and women will bump heads. That, yeah, the desire of the woman will be contrary to the husband. Okay? But, but yeah. Number three, Adam. In verses 17 through 19. So the serpent, Eve, Adam. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife 
and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it and all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust and to dust you shall return. So here we have here. Couple things we see is that one, work will be hard. Anybody attest to that? Work can be hard. It is hard. So, working now, which would, yeah, before the fall, wouldn't experience any of that, any of that hardness, any of that grunt. But now, work is hard. It's a struggle. That also, death, as God had promised, would happen. We will die. We will, from the dust we were created, we will return to that dust. So that's the serpent, that's Eve, that's Adam. But then here, number four, ultimately, man and woman will experience separation from God. They experience separation from God. Look at verses 23 to 24. It says, Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken, he drove out the man. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So before the fall, we were in God's presence. We were cooling, chilling. There was peace. There was shalom. Man is fallen, now banished from God's presence. There's beef now between God and man. That's sin. And Every human being since then has been trying to get back to God, trying to get back into God's presence. So separated from God, this is, this is huge, right? That when we think about us being in God's presence because of sin, how it totally wrecked everyone and everything. then what's the solution? What's the solution? It's number three. Look back with me at verse 15 and then also verse 21. In verse 15, the solution, the hope that's given there says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his hill. Genesis 3.15, we see that God promises hope. Promises a solution. He promises a savior. This verse here is known as the proto-evangelion. Proto meaning first and evangelion uh, meaning good news or gospel. Essentially, this is the first mention in the scripture of the gospel. Here. In Genesis 3.15, in that God promised the Savior to come through the woman. So in our sin, this is how good God is. He, he promises a solution to be fulfilled in our Savior. He didn't have to do that. Again, as we've yet yeah, know, as we've even talked about 
God would have been just, he would have been right to leave us in our sin. He could have, but he didn't. So he promises the Savior. This points forward to even what Paul writes about in Romans 5, 8. He says, but God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were sending it up, opposed to God, not checking for God, the Savior, who was the promised seed from the woman, working through the lineage, born of the Virgin Mary, born as a baby, humbling himself. We talked about that last week. Being humbled, being born as a baby in the likeness of men, but even humbling himself a step further by, yeah, humbling himself to the point of death, even death on the cross. This Jesus comes, lives a perfect sinless life that none of us could ever live, and dies the death that we all deserve for our sin. He was buried in the grave, and he was rose on the third day, offering hope to all of us. The hope that we have received and believed upon by his grace. And the same hope that he offers to all who would turn from their sin to buck a Yubi, to you turn and turn to him by faith, by trust, by belief, trusting in what he has done alone for salvation. The Bible says once we do that, we can be forgiven, cleansed, made right with God. Jesus is the gap bridger. He bridges the gap between man and God. But then he also does something else. He also provides a covering. A covering that we were in need of. So, so Adam and Eve try to cover themselves with fig leaves, making loincloths for themselves. God addresses a physical need there, but also, I believe, a spiritual need, as we know that through Christ we have been covered. Look what it says in verse 21. It says, And the Lord God made for Adam, for his wife, garments of skins and clothed them. Here, the Lord doing something that we couldn't do for ourselves, not being able to cover ourselves fully and completely. But then also, I think this offers hope for us this afternoon who all struggle with sin, who maybe even came in here with your head down because of sin. Well, the reminder this afternoon and the encouragement this afternoon for us as Christians is that Jesus has covered you. He has provided a covering for you. You don't have to come in here trying to fix it yourself, trying to clean yourself up or cover yourself up. Through the gospel, Jesus has provided that covering. Receive that covering. Believe upon that covering afresh this afternoon for your sin. And also a reminder in the gospel Again, your shame, your guilt, your wanting to retreat and isolate has been born in the body of Christ. 
You don't have to hang your head low in shame. You are not guilty. You were once guilty. I was once guilty. But now we wear, that was the hat we wore. But the hat we wear now is one of righteousness. One of forgiven. So you don't have to hang your head low this afternoon. You can, you can put your head high and look to Christ. Because he's covered your sin. He's covered my sin. And you can go out these doors today. In light of that truth. Free. So be encouraged, Christian. Be encouraged this afternoon. God has covered you. And he keeps on covering you through Christ. Be encouraged. And you don't experience the judgment that was once due to you. I don't experience the judgment that I deserve, that we deserve. Christ took that upon himself. You are not condemned, Romans 8, 1. Therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You're not condemned. God isn't judging you in that way. He isn't opposed to you anymore. If that isn't something to make you shout hallelujah, I don't know what else is. But what could be? This is the good news of the gospel. Believe it afresh this afternoon. Rest in it. This is our only hope. So in conclusion, as Sister Natasha comes back up, in conclusion, humanity had no hope. But now humanity has hope in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. We are fallen. This world is fallen. But it won't remain that way. There will be a day where the Lord Jesus will crack open the sky. And for all of us who are in him, and for all of those who have gone before us, Christians who, who are sleeping, will be caught up in the sky and we'll be caught up with them. And he's going to make all things right, all things new. Keep hope alive, family. Be encouraged this week. This is where the world is heading. This is the direction the world is heading. We're heading to that day where the Lord Jesus will take us home. Anybody ready to go home? I'm ready to go home to be with my Savior. God, thank you for your word this afternoon as we yeah, just walk through what we believe as a church, God, that we are indeed fallen. We have broken your laws, your commands, and we deserve your judgment. But we thank you that you didn't leave us there, that you sent your son to take our judgment, to take our sin, and to in exchange, give us life. Give us 
really yourself. So we praise you for that hope. We pray, God, for any of us in this room who came in maybe feeling a little hopeless, maybe weighed down because of our sin. Pray, Lord, that we will be reminded this afternoon that you have conquered our sin. That you've conquered the grave. That Satan has been defeated. One day he will be completely done away with. So we long for that day. And most importantly, we long for the day that we'll be with you. Maranatha, come quick. In Jesus' name, amen.